hello, hello. No? It's coming through. I can just I can just yell. It's not really one of those sermons. Welcome to our service this morning. If you haven't been welcomed enough, it's always good to gather in the name of the Lord. It's particularly precious to have us together when it seems that it's just a period of time where it's so difficult for people to get out of the house with illnesses flying around and all these sorts of things. Um, and yet, we, we have a feast today. Uh, we've, we've been making our way through the book of Romans, as I'm sure that you know. Um, and last week, Mike did a wonderful job of explaining to us the, the bulk of Romans chapter 10. Um, so we're going to be in the end of, of chapter 10, heading into chapter 11. And, and the way we'd kind of planned out the, the structure of the sermons for the last little while, um, I was going to be preaching the entirety of chapter 11 today, which for some reason that I cannot fathom, we thought was a good idea at some point in time. Um, and it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, so instead of getting to there, we're actually only going to get going to get 10 verses into chapter 11, which is good news for us all. There's a members meeting on afterwards, and we would have been here till midday before the meeting. Um, what, what is happening in this part of God's Word, it is, it is richly dense. Uh, it provides for us some very real blessings. Um, and, and the passage kind of does two things. Um, firstly, it, it's, it's a linking passage between what's happening at the end of chapter 10 and what's happening in the bulk of chapter 11. And so in a sense, there's a, there's a big picture of what's happening um, in the book of Romans in this text. We're going to skim over that as quickly as possible because it's really repeating things that we've already heard, but that because we are going to do that, that's going to give us the, the freedom to zoom in on some of the details of, of this, this passage and sort of highlight some things in a, in a greater detail than we've been able to do before. Um, so for those of you who've been paying attention and listening along, we finished last week's sermon um, at the end of Romans, uh, sorry, at, at Romans 10, 17, with uh, a promise from God, which is this, um, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. How wonderful is this? This, this verse has a very important meaning, um, that faith comes from hearing, and in particular through hearing the word of God. This informs so much, so much of what ministry is about the single most important thing that you can do as a believer in ministering to somebody else is to help them encounter the Word of God because faith comes through hearing and hearing the Word of God. It is not your words that people need to hear most. It is God's Word that people need to hear most. If ministry depended on us and our wisdom then the call to go to all nations and make disciples would be a crippling burden. I don't know about you, but I'm not sufficient for that task. But my job isn't to show them my word. My job is to show people God's word and let him and his word do all of the work. Because faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And so there's a lot of comfort to be found there and there's a lot of confidence to be found there. Actually, we were just talking about this at, at small group this week, uh, and someone said a thing about this church, and I've never been more complimented, so I need to put it on the public record and make sure that no one ever forgets. Um, someone in the group said that what he likes about the preaching in this church is that we preach from, this is, this is the phrase used, from behind the Bible. How good is that? We preach from behind the Bible. I thought that was great. I love that so much. Yes, that is, that is what we're aiming to do. Thank you for noticing. Um, that it is God's word and not our personalities that is central in the worship of this church. That should encourage you as well. It should encourage you because you can do that too. You can absolutely do that. 
you can share God's word. That's, that's within your ability to do. And so that was a great place to finish. What happens next in our passage is that we turn again back to the big theme of what Romans chapter 9 through 11 has been all about. The question of the refusal of the Jews to come to Jesus. We get there in verse 18 of chapter 10. But I ask, have they not heard? That's the obvious question, isn't it? Do you feel that? Right back at the beginning of chapter 9, we began with the big question that is the sort of the driving force behind these three chapters of the Bible. Has the word of God failed in a world where a church is filled with Gentiles and not Jews? Right? Is, is that God not keeping his promises? Has he let us down? And now in light of what we just heard in chapter 10 about the role that the word of God plays in the creation of faith, we ask it again, this time from a more informed place. Is the reason why Israel hasn't come in simply that they haven't heard? The Apostle Paul tells us, if only it was that easy. Um, in answer to that question, he has this section to say. So let's read um, the big section of our text today, and then we'll zoom in on the part that we're going to concentrate on. Romans 10, 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. End of our passage for today. How encouraging, right? To summarize all of that really quickly, um, the problem for Israel is not that they haven't heard. And we know from this passage as well, the problem for Israel is not that God has rejected them. Something else is happening. What is going on is that God has preserved a remnant from among them while hardening the rest until he brings the Gentiles in. And next week's passage is a peek into the future, which opens our eyes up to God's future plans for Israel, the very short version he's not done with them. And that's the, the big flow of what we've just read. And in a sense, if you've been paying attention along the course of our sermons in, in Romans 9 in particular, um, none of that is particularly new. We have heard this before. And so if you're just sitting there reeling going, there was no way on earth I could have taken all of that in and understood what you just said. Uh, let me just encourage you, jump, jump onto our church's website, 
hunt down the sermons from Romans 9, there was two of them, um, where we really cover most of what that was about. So because he's largely repeating himself, what that that means is that this week we get to, instead of kind of making our way line by line to make um, all of the points that Paul is making, we get to zoom in on one of those details which has previously just been mentioned in passing, and we get to magnify that out and sort of see all of the big implications for it, which I'm excited to do because it's so extraordinarily encouraging. Um, The idea that we're going to sit in this morning is the idea of the remnant. The remnant. It's good for us to sit here, to dwell on this promise. It's encouraging and it's, I believe, timely. It's an urgent message. We're going to, we're going to zoom in on, on verses 2 to 6, uh, and in particular verse 5, which tells us this. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. A remnant. This uh, theme of the remnant is it's an important thread which runs through both the, the Old and the New Testaments. Um, it's an important thing for us to understand and to trust. What is a remnant, I hear you ask? I'm glad you asked. It is a movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio where he gets mauled by a bear. Oh, wait, no, that's the revenant. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's what we do each week here at church when we take communion. Wait, no, that's a, that's a remembrance. It's what you do at a certain age when you no longer have to go to work anymore. No, that's retirement. A remnant, a remnant is a portion which is the remaining subset of a previous whole. The remaining subset of a previous whole. Like, like once upon a time, I had hair. And now I have a remnant, right? It, it's not gone. Neither is it all there. There is a remnant preserved by grace. Paul says that God has preserved a remnant of faithful people. Specifically, in this context, um, a subset of the large nation of Israel. And this idea also applies to the church. We are, likewise, a remnant chosen by grace. There is the whole of everyone who has ever been a part of Israel. There is the whole of everybody who has ever lived. But not all were faithful to him. Not all have remained. Many, most, depending on when you live, were unfaithful. But God has consistently, throughout the whole of history, preserved a remnant, a portion. I suppose the next question is, how is that encouraging? How is that encouraging? It's a little sad even if you think about it at at, at first glance. Wouldn't we rather that all were faithful? Wouldn't that be the encouraging message? Wouldn't that be the exciting thing to hear? And yes, of course, we would prefer that. Now, this is where this idea of the remnant starts to get into our hearts. The promise of the remnant is particularly encouraging during tough times. During tough times. And most especially encouraging when faithfulness is the minority position. When faithfulness is the minority position. When it feels like God's kingdom is going backwards. And some part of us begins to think, begins to become afraid, this thing might fail. That's when we need to hear about the remnant. In times like the ones we are living in. When we look at the grand sweep of the whole of history, God has always, since the days of Adam and Eve, preserved for himself a remnant called out from the world and called into his grace. And sometimes that line of faith is a mile wide, thick to the point where it seems to include almost everybody. 
And then there are other times in history when that line of faith seems like it's a, a millimeter thin to the point where you could literally count those who remain faithful to God. There have been a few times in history where it got wafer thin. Think of the days of Noah. The example given to us in Romans is from the days of Elijah, the prophet, who we read about in 1 Kings, um, mostly in chapters 18 and 19. If you have a Bible, please get one open. I didn't make a PowerPoint for this because we're reading so much of this text that um, it would just take forever to get it up there. You're better off having this in your hands. Um, We're going to be looking at the life of Elijah, starting in the book of 1 Kings, and we'll start in chapter 16, verse 29. A little bit of a backstory. Elijah was a prophet of God, 1 Kings 16, if you, if you missed that, who ministered in the northern kingdom of the divided kingdom of Israel, the kingdom which was named Israel. And he lived and ministered during the reign of King Ahab. Now we get an introduction to King Ahab in chapter 16, verse 29. This is how he is introduced. It says, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. It's quite the bio, isn't it? None of the kings of the northern kingdom in their entire history remained faithful to God. And Ahab, among that group, was a particularly bad one. He openly worshipped another God who is no God. He built a temple and an altar to Baal in Samaria. So what you have happening is there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And in the southern kingdom, the capital Jerusalem has a temple to Yahweh. And the northern kingdom in Samaria has a temple to Baal. It's brazen. His wife's name has become a synonym for immoral, sinful rebellion against God. Jezebel. This is the titular Jezebel. This is the one that everybody is talking about. And in this ancient culture, the king really did set the pace for the nation where he led, the people followed. And so the open worship of Baal became the norm in the northern kingdom of Israel, so much so that it was difficult to find anyone left among the people who still worshipped Yahweh. This was a time of apostasy, do you understand? It is difficult for us to imagine what Elijah's life must have been like, called by God to serve as a prophet in a nation which was in the process of rejecting its God. Elijah's job, to some extent, especially in the early parts of his ministry, was to watch it go all to pieces and fall apart. The kingdom of Israel was now a place where the worship of Yahweh was openly persecuted. 
all the most powerful people in the land, from the king and his wife down, were set against him because he spoke the truth of God's word in an openly unrepentant society. Ahab and Jezebel made war on the prophets of Yahweh, and most of them were slain or silenced. Elijah had to flee into hiding for several years, during which time there was a miraculous drought. This is the beginning of the story of Elijah. But God was with Elijah. If, 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 if I was to mention Elijah to you and you were familiar with his story, we are probably most familiar with the account of his confronting the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and the, the stunning victory that the Lord won there, which is what we read about in 1 Kings chapter 18. Please turn there. We're starting at verse 17 of chapter 18. Where after several years of this drought, a judgment by God, the Lord speaks to Elijah and tells him to seek out Ahab. Go talk to him. It's time to have a confrontation, Elijah. It's worth having a look because it's exciting stuff. Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? It's ominous, isn't it? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. And so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. There's going to be a showdown. Elijah came near to all the people and said, now, I like this moment, he's... Here's the prophets over here. Here's the king over here. Elijah turns to talk to the people. He said, eyeballs them. I imagine he might have had a bit, of, a bit of spittle stuck in his beard as he went. He came near to the people and he said, how long will you go limp? Um, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many. Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it. And they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Now for my favorite verse in the Bible. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be wakened. The unnecessary sass. The needless heckle. 
It's, a very, it's an alpha move. Maybe he's taken a week. Come on, boys, you can do it. And so they cry aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the, blushed gout, um, gush, the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. All right, now we get this beautiful moment. In verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seers of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and lay it on the wood. (laughs) Once again, more unnecessary sass. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And we're picturing jars like a jam jar. No, 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 no. Jars like half the size of a human, right? And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. If we're going to do this, we're going to do this properly. Let's start with wet wood. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, that you have done all these things, uh, sorry, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink. But there is a sound of rushing rain. The drought is coming to an end. It's an incredible passage, an incredible occasion in the history of Israel. And there are times in the life of faith like this, where we see the Lord moving in power. When we we feel the momentum and the enthusiasm and the power of God displayed. Can you remember some of those periods in your life? Maybe not as spectacular as the life of Elijah the prophet. But aren't there just times when it feels like Jesus is winning in us and in our world and faith comes easily? Can you remember those times? Maybe for you, it was when you were a new believer and you, you, just, you just could not get enough of Jesus. You just, you couldn't read the Bible fast enough. And God was, God was speaking to you in your brokenness, which had previously defined your life. And even though it was painful, those false altars to idols that were no gods were coming down before the Spirit's new life. You were confessing your sin in embarrassing and shocking ways. 
You, you were being transformed. You were stepping out in faith and finding that God was trustworthy. He was bringing mercy and redemption into your life in ways that before that moment you had never thought was possible. There was, there was reconciliation and growth and joy and purity of heart and a sense of inclusion and acceptance. God was winning. And it was, it was encouraging. It was, it was a position of strong faith. Maybe there's been periods of time in your life where you've been in church and seen that happening. Where heaps of people were becoming new believers. It seems like folks were, were just lining up to jump into the baptistry. They couldn't get in there fast enough. The congregation was, was growing. It was healthy. Now, times of worship were engaging and inspiring. You felt that buzz from, from the weekend as you went into your week. You were seeing prayers answered, and seeing prayers answered was motivating you to, to pray. And we were seeing that together as a church family or in other church families that you've been a part of. I haven't seen this personally, but maybe some of you can remember times when revival has broken out across the whole culture. It's, it's happened in living memory where Jesus was visibly moving the needle on the trajectory of culture and people were turning to him in droves right across the nation. The waters that we, we swim in just suddenly changed drastically all of a sudden towards God. When the boastful voices speaking out against him with their vile blasphemies were silenced or rejected exposed like the prophets of Baal. And God brought cleansing and renewal and blessing. He removed corruption and slavery and iniquity and in its place, rivers of righteousness. There have been periods of time like that. These times, these mountaintops, they're precious to us. We should embrace them. We should cherish them. We should love them. And when they're happening, we should give them our all. But the life of faith is not like that all the time. Do you understand? There are mountaintops and there are valleys. Because here's the thing. We might be familiar with that part of the story from Elijah's life, but we are typically less familiar with the very next thing that happened to him. In short, Elijah fell apart. He disintegrates. Kings, uh, 1 Kings 19 verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life away, for I am no better than my father's. How sad is that? This man of God is distraught to the point where the only way forward that he can see is to pray that God gives him a quick out. I'm done. I've contributed my share. It's time to quit. God has just won one of the most spectacular victories in the Bible at a time when the odds seemed particularly stacked against him. And he wins it 
through Elijah and through Elijah's obedience. But Elijah himself is not experiencing any of the joy of that. He is distraught. Why? Because the weight of what he has been carrying has caught up with him. Because he has unknowingly believed some of his doubts. We heard a hint of it in chapter 18 when he was addressing the nation of Israel. He looked at them and he said to them, I, even I only, am left as a prophet of the Lord. Elijah lived in a time when the thin red line of faith had gotten particularly thin. He saw the size of the problem. He was very familiar with his own limitations. And he had wrongly concluded that that meant it was hopeless. Even though God was still very much at work, that blanket of doubt had blotted out the sun as far as his eyes were concerned and all he could see was darkness. Time to give up. Shattered. And you and I, we will have those times in our faith. You've been running well. And then one day you sin spectacularly. And you start to think, well, I've made a mess of it now. How could God ever love me again? I might as well double down on my foolishness. Because the road back to God looks too painful and too impossible. Have you had that one yet? Or, how about this, we experience a big setback in life. Somebody we love or trust or respect rejects Jesus or rejects us. And it feels just like an impossibly huge setback. How could we ever recover from that? Maybe God's failed. Maybe it's, maybe it's not going to work. Or something bad happens at church. A bunch of people leave. Or that there's some kind of terrible conflict going on amongst the membership with people just treating each other appallingly and speaking to each other in a way that you would hope to never hear in a church. The momentum goes. The resources aren't there the way that we want them to be there. Big things happen in culture, in, in the wider society that move us as an entire nation further away from the light of Jesus. And days start growing really dark for those who are living the life of faith. Doesn't, doesn't it seem like we are living at a time when a lot of fertilizer is being heaped onto the garden of despair? You can spend all day doom scrolling on the internet, getting fed a steady diet of tragedy and, and hopelessness and pain until the point where that becomes the defining lens through which you view the whole of life. And it's not that God has failed. It is not that there is no cause for hope. But we become unable to see what God is doing because our eyes have been darkened by our wavering hearts. Good news. God does not crush Elijah for his weakness. And God is not coming to crush you. God ministers to him 
with gentle tenderness. And he restores him. And our God wants to restore you. To give strength to your weak knees. And endurance to your failing heart. The message that God preaches to Elijah is the message of the remnant. Elijah prays his prayer of utter despair. It says in verse 5, And then he lay down and slept under a broom tree. What's he doing? He's waiting to die. In the middle of nowhere. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. <laughs> and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, and he ate, and he drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? I wonder what tone he said. I just, to have been there, fly on the wall, right? Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he, the Lord, said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. This is an eventful patch of weather, isn't it? That's not speed in Brisbane, I assume. That's where Mount Horeb is. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, probably to avoid the earthquakes and the fires, and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him, and it said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive... You shall anoint Hazael to be king of Assyria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet... I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, 
and every mouth that has not kissed him. The victories that Elijah had seen in his lifetime were spectacular. But he was ultimately discouraged because he could not see that God was still active in his world. Do you understand? No matter what is really happening in the world, you and I, we have an internal world. We have a lens through which we view the world. And our lens can and often is a distortion of reality. We do not perceive rightly. We can get to a place where we can see the problems, but not the the positives. Not what the Lord is doing. Elijah's problems were very real. They really were seeking his life. There really were very few left. He really was in danger. Faith really had grown thin. But God ministered to him and gave him strength by showing him some of the details that his failing eyes had yet to see and some future promises that he couldn't have possibly yet seen. There's a reckoning coming. There is, there is, a, there is a time coming in the future where the, the course of the nation will be changed, where faithfulness will be restored. There'll be a continuation of the ministry of the prophets. There's, a, there's these future realities that you couldn't have possibly seen, Elijah. And what is more, there is a remnant. There is actually 7,000 of you, not one. Elijah, you're not alone. There are 7,000 knees that have not bent to the bar. There are 7,000 lips which have refused to kiss him. And I will preserve them, says the Lord. I'm all alone, says Elijah. I'm the only one. It's all on me. And I can't do it. Time to give up. It's hopeless. Do any of those thoughts sound familiar to you? In your family? In your workplace? In your world? You are not alone, says God because I have preserved my remnant. Preserved by grace and not by works so that they will always remain. The remnant is preserved by God. It's why you are here. He has brought you thus far and he will lead you home. But God, we object. 7,000. There's so few. God has not rejected his people. For now, yes, there is few. But not forever. But not forever. There is a remnant at the present time, chosen by grace. And in the future, that remnant will remain. A remnant of Israel, yes. And we too are now part of that promise. He will not fail us. Tell me, brothers and sisters, how are your eyes? 
How accurately are they seeing the world? Can you see what the Lord is doing? Are you interpreting your circumstances through the eyes of faith and seeing and cherishing and experiencing the joy of watching our great God do and will as He does and wills? Are you watching Him build His kingdom? Are you hopeful that His plans will never fail? Are you experiencing the hope of a joy which mere circumstance can never diminish? Diminish. Or are you believing the sermon that circumstances preach? A sermon of lies. Are your eyes fixed on the problem and not on the Lord? We've been spending so much time talking about how great and how sovereign He is. Are you connecting that to your everyday reality? He is sovereign in your circumstances. Let's pray. We thank you, our Lord and our God, that we are not abandoned, that you are not weak, that you haven't failed and you haven't changed your mind that through good times and hard, that we might trust in you and should trust in you. Today is a good day for faith. Because, Lord, the, the size of the problem is bigger than me. It's not bigger than you. Our Lord and our God, we pray that by your Spirit's work within us and through your word that you would give us eyes to see who you are, what you are doing, and what yet may be. And would we hang on to your promises by faith? Would we continue to refuse to worship the Baals of our age? to bend the knee to them. In order to bring about an easy life. Would you and you alone stand unopposed as the center of our attention and our affection? Give us the faith to trust you in the valley as well as on the mountain. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.